Welcome to Mom and Up. With your co-host, developmental psychologist, Dr. Marty Erickson, and Dr. Aaron Erickson, maternal child health specialist and nurse practitioner. Here's my grandma, Marty. And here's Aaron, my mom and mom. Welcome to Mom Enough. I'm Marty Erickson here with my daughter, Erin Erickson, and we are very pleased to welcome the guests who are with us today. This is the third in a three-part series of podcasts we've been doing with our supporting partner, St. David's Center for Child and Family Development. And I'm just so excited to be able to bring this series to you. It addresses parental mental health and the impacts of, of parental mental health and mental health difficulties on children and the parent-child relationship. And this is something that's important, I think, for all of us as parents, grandparents in my case, um, to really understand because there's so much we can do, um, even in cases where there is a parent with a significant mental illness, um, to really maximize strengths and help both parent and child um, move forward in a healthy way. Uh, and I always like to say that health can exist right alongside illness. So it isn't that it's just one or the other by any means. And we always want to focus on resilience and strategies for getting help and support when you're facing difficult situations. Um, the previous two podcasts in this series uh, dealt with postpartum issues uh, around depression and anxiety, things that are very, very common among all kinds of parents and things that are not so common and may require much more intense intervention. But again, being able to really help both parents and children move forward, even in the face of those sorts of challenges. Um, so we're really happy to bring this three-part series to you. And let me introduce today's guests. We have two people with us today, both from St. David's Center for Child and Family development. And one is Jane Perry, who's the Director of Field Advancement for St. David's Center and is responsible for the majority of St. David's Center's mental health training and consultation, as well as community-based mental health services. She's been working with children and their families for 30 years, and you don't look old enough to, to say that, but uh, um, that I believe that's the truth. Jane also consults in large systems, including school districts and in Hennepin County, where we reside, um, supporting professionals to effectively attune to their staff and the children and families they serve. That's very important consultation work. And our other guest with us today is Kimberly Gascoigne. Kimberly has worked in the Healthy Families Program at St. David's Center since 2011, so you've been at that for quite a while as well. Um, Kimberly also provides preventive home visiting services to families prenatally until the child turns four, and I just love to hear that um, families and, and children are getting that kind of home-based service up to age four. I, I remember you know, advocating uh, for and working uh, in that field myself, developing programs of that sort, and um, well, what an amazing thing to be able to stick with a child and a family for four years. Um, she also provides clinical outpatient therapy, and she supervises home visitors. So welcome, Jane and Kimberly. Really delighted to have you with us, and I, I just hear nothing but wonderful things about both of you. Thank you so much, Marty. We're glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. 
Yes, thank you both. I'm Erin Erickson, as my mom mentioned, and um, this is just such an important topic. And I've often talked to my kids about uh, the difference between mental health and mental illness. And I tell them that even in, in the context of having a diagnosed mental illness, you can still have mental health in how you manage and navigate that illness. And um, I think that's a, a really empowering place to start when it comes to, to something that can be so stigmatized. So when you're talking about uh, severe and persistent mental illness, how do you define that? So yeah, so we, uh, because we aren't able to tailor our messages to people individually in ways that can be uniquely helpful to them, we just want to acknowledge that we do live in this culture that tends to stigmatize people with mental health, and we live in this culture of blame and shame, and we live in a culture where we like to other people, like those other people with mental illnesses, who they're the ones with the problems we're fine, you know, everything's fine for me. And so Kimberly, Kimberly and I really approach this topic with a stance of compassion and curiosity and trying to find understanding because when we can understand things, we can shift them. And so things are really hopeful for us when we talk about this topic, even though it's, it's a challenging topic, there's always hope um, right alongside of it. So um, when we think about the Denef definition of severe and persistent mental illness, we're thinking about the intensity of the illness along with the chronic nature and long duration of the illness. So I'll just use depression as an example. Some people have a low-grade depression that lasts throughout much of their lifetime, um, but it's manageable and it doesn't interfere too much with their day-to-day. -day. So that wouldn't be considered severe or persistent. It's consistent over time, but it, it lacks the severity. And then you can think about people who maybe are going through life just fine and they hit age 40 or 50 and suddenly they develop a really deep depression and that could be a really severe depression, but it resolves over time and it's kind of a one-time event. So that also wouldn't be what we're thinking about. We're really thinking about people who have that severity over time in a really chronic way. And so in terms of depression, we're often thinking about people who might be in and out of hospitals um, and unable to uh, manage their symptoms and challenges through traditional, you know, talk therapy and medication. That's that's a very good um, definition, and I, I think you've really captured the you know the combination of, of persistence and severity that really uh, really is a core part of that definition. I wonder if you could give us some examples of how. SPMI, severe and persistent mental illness, um, affects parent-child interactions. You know, what does this look like and feel like to a child who's experiencing this parent's illness and in that chronic um, and severe way and with the in and out of the home sometimes because of hospitalizations. I have a friend who, who grew up with a mother who had very severe persistent mental illness and um, one of his memories was, uh, strongest memories was always about the, the mother having to leave and go to the hospital and, you know, what the meaning was around that for him as a child and, and for other people around him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Um, we might think of a caregiver who has um, a diagnosis, say like bipolar disorder or um, schizophrenia. And when their symptoms aren't 
well managed, um, they might have moods or emotions that are unpredictable. And so for a young baby um, or young child who's completely dependent on their parent for not only their physical needs, but also all of their emotional needs, that unpredictability um, can be really scary and kind of frightening. So sometimes we think of that kind of on a um, continuum from a parent who may feel helpless to a parent who may, may be more hostile. So I can kind of give you an example of each of those um, and what they might look like. So a parent who um, may appear to their child as helpless might be someone who is having severe depression and might not um, smile or talk to their baby um, very often. And um, the baby observes the parent's face as being still or looking sad or upset um, rather than that kind of joy and delight that we know is so good for babies' uh, brain development and language development. Um, a parent who's very depressed might not have the energy to respond to a baby's cries or might feel at a loss um, of how to soothe the baby who's upset or a, a toddler who's having a tantrum. Um, and so they're kind of helpless. And this builds up um, a pattern over time that the child begins to learn um, nobody can respond to my needs. There's nobody there to respond to my needs. And on the hostile end of the spectrum, um, we would think of a parent who maybe is so overwhelmed, so stressed or anxious that um, they, they might feel angry or upset um, when their child cries and might yell at their child or um, might with a toddler threaten them with uh, something scary to get them to stop. So in this example, um, if that's a consistent sort of behavioral or kind of um, an unpredictable pattern, then the child ends up having no one to turn to. You know, as a young child, you're supposed to turn to your caregiver if you're scared or hurt um, and the person you're turning to is scary. Um, so that leaves them with no one to turn to. So we can see how these kind of relationship patterns then impact the child's ability to form relationships in the future and know how to, you know, soothe themselves or have their emotions regulated. Well, I really appreciate that helpful uh, kind of the picture you created to help us better understand what this looks like. And I can only imagine how hard that is for a child. And um really feel that we as a community need to be doing more to ensure that these children are getting supports from other places where they can have their needs met in different ways. I'm also thinking about, you know, our listeners, maybe uh, someone listening knows someone or has someone they love who's experiencing significant mental health challenges and are parenting. What resources are available for them? And I also want to say, it, you know, it's difficult to be in this type of relationship for the child. It's also difficult for the parent or the caregiver to feel um, unsuccessful as a parent. So I think it's kind of painful for, for both of them. Um, in our community, there are several resources, two that come to my mind right away. Um, one is Pregnancy and Postpartum Support MN, which is a website um, that has a lot of information and resources for caregivers with mental health um, concerns or 
diagnoses. Um, another is at Hennepin County Medical Center. There's um, the Red Leaf Center for Family Healing that supports a lot of families with mental health concerns. Um, but I can talk specifically about a program at St. David Center. Um, I'm the supervisor for a new program that we have called Sensitive Parenting Support. And this is a home visiting program specifically for caregivers with um, persistent mental illness. And they're either pregnant or have a child up to the age of four. Um, so this is a six month long program where we meet with families weekly. In the beginning of our work, we um, build a relationship with the parent and, and child, um, assess the development of the child and help connect the family to any resources or supports that they might be lacking. And then we jump into a therapeutic intervention um, with these families called attachment and biobehavioral catch-up. We call it ABC for short. So in ABC, um, we help teach families about how nurturing their baby, following their baby's lead, uh, delighting in their baby or young child, uh, calming and reducing frightening behaviors are really um, so important for building the parent-child relationship and for um, child brain development. So we, you know, talk about those concepts a lot. And then also we bring toys and activities for the parent and child together and do a lot of in the moment pointing out when we see the parent um, offering those kind of behaviors to the child. So um, for example, I might say something like, oh, you saw she was crying, so you just scooped her right up and rubbed her back. That's such nice nurturance. That really helps her know you'll, you'll always be there for her. Um, so our hope is that by helping parents feel confident, being with them in the moment of these kind of stressful parenting uh, situations, helping them feel supported and successful in their parenting, that that can be one piece of supporting their mental health as well. Well, I think that's so important. And uh, of course, this this kind of work is really near and dear to my own heart, uh, has uh, kind of constituted the bulk of my, of my life work. And I'm thinking about just that simple thing that you just described um, within the ABC program and, uh, you know, naming something that that parent is doing well um, and very, in very concrete terms. And I don't know if you're, if you're using video with the parents, video recording them and having them watch themselves. Um, but I, I know that that yes, program, you know, has um, the program as I know it has that at its core. And, um, and that was at the core of a program by Eglund and I developed back in 1986 um, as a part of the STEEP program that um, that we've done in many different parts of the world. But what I think, uh, you know, is so important when you think about these parents who are so overwhelmed with the emotions of, that are a normal part of their illness and um, they're not seeing anything that they're doing right. I mean, I think the the shame and the heartache are just so overwhelming. And sometimes when you can just see those little things in yourself um, and bit by bit, those little moments when you do the right thing, when you are sensitive to a child's cue, when you are able to find a smile and engage in that joyful way, uh, playful way, 
it's it's just such a breakthrough for so many parents. And you think about how those little things add up over time and the fact that you're just coming back and coming back over multiple years able to do that. Um, I, I think it's, it's really important. Its importance can't be overstated. So um, kudos to you that you're, you have this going and uh, able to work with parents of, of so many different kinds of challenges, but with this particular um, group of parents that we're talking about today who have the severe and, and, uh, and persistent um, mental illness. So what can our listeners do to support someone who is parenting and has SPMI? I mean, if you have a friend or somebody in your family, I, I grew up in a family where there was a lot of bipolar disorder and I was around my, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, um, what had a very severe bipolar uh, disorder. And so I, I, you know, have a lot of a lot of memories that go back. Now I was not experiencing him every day. He was not my primary caregiver, and that's a very different situation. But if you have someone in your family or in your circle of friends in your neighborhood, you know, what can you do? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, um, especially given that just being a parent in today's world is hard, even when things are going well and we all need a support network that's coming alongside us to help us raise our kids. I'm thinking about um, like one of the most important things or stances you can take when you come alongside someone in this situation is to show up regulated yourself. Because I think sometimes we have so much anxiety when we see things not going well between a parent and child, and we can get really stirred up and anxious and worried. And the last thing um, moms or dads who are struggling need is for us to be dumping our own anxiety on top of what's a really hard situation for them already. So I think the first step is just kind of to step back and think about like, how are you showing up for them? And are you showing up in a supportive and compassionate way and a calm, a calm way? Um, and then I think, you know, a lot of times we've You've probably had guests who've talked about ACE scores or adverse childhood experiences. So when we think about that, we know uh, being raised by a parent with uh, mental illness is an adverse childhood experience. But what we also know and what research tells us is that when... Um, when children also have a significant amount of benevolent childhood experiences or positive childhood experiences, that really can negate some of the negative uh, physiological and psychological outcomes that come with early adversity. And some examples of that are like when a child, an adult can name, boy, when I was little, um, I had one person who I really loved and, and helped me feel safe. And I think you've probably all heard people tell stories like this where they say, um, you know, nobody in my family ever paid attention to me. I felt so alone and lonely all the time. But when Aunt Beth came over, she would play with me and we would play with my dollhouse and she'd help me clean my playroom. And you can just hear in the adult voice when they tell stories of their childhood, how deep and meaningful that was for them and how that was a, an anchor moment that they could carry with them through that adversity. Um, and I think about a friend whose parents were very ill and who um, 
had a grandparent who loved her dearly. And so he would take her for walks in the woods and they would go buy mint chocolate chip ice cream. And so now as an adult, that's her favorite ice cream. And every time she eats that, she thinks of her grandpa. So it doesn't have to be anything big. It's just those small gestures and moments of being present for someone and creating safety and giving them that kind of relational back and forth experience. That's harder to do um, when someone is really struggling with a mental illness. So that's one way to think about coming alongside people for support. And we also know if kids like school and have at least one teacher that cares about them, that has a huge impact on on them. And so I just love to have teachers think about how they can always hold in mind they could be that one person that really turns a kid's life around. And I think teachers are stressed now, especially post-COVID and um kids are acting out behaviorally and people are feeling confused about what's going on with children. But if we think about it, like children are always trying to tell us their story and they might not be able to walk into your classroom and say, hey, my mom's really sick and she's not able to take care of me. But they might walk into your classroom and like throw things or like have these really big behaviors. And so if we can think of their behavior as meaningful and get curious about what that's about and curious about like what they've been through and what they're trying to show us rather than stand in this place of judgment around like, what's wrong with that kid? Why can't he just sit down and listen? Uh, Doesn't he know he should be learning his math skills right now? Um, I just think teachers are another huge uh, group of people who can really have a super positive influence on kids. I see you smiling. Is there something you wanted to (laughs) add? Yes. I'm thinking about when I was in fifth grade and, and it was a very difficult time in my life and my home life. And, um, you know, I didn't talk about it to anybody. It was something I just, I just couldn't talk about. And, uh, I had this most wonderful fifth grade teacher, Louise Silver, and I will never, ever forget her. And she had no idea what I was experiencing because I was a kid who showed up and I looked like everything was fine. And, uh, you know, school was my happy place. I, I always have loved learning and, um, you know, was, was a well-behaved child, but she had such an impact on me. And then this is a kind of funny coincidence. Um, when I became a teacher myself, my, I started my career being an elementary teacher and my very first job, I was assigned a master teacher to, um, to come and observe me and kind of provide some mentoring and guidance. And this was in a different district than I had attended school when I was a child. And lo and behold, who shows up as my master teacher but Louise Silver, this woman who had been my fifth grade teacher. And so I had that extra <laughs> dose, dose of her when I was teaching in a, a really a school that um, was in a very troubled neighborhood and kind of a violent place. And so I really needed all the mentoring I could get at that point. But, uh, but anyway, years later, um, I, when I was, you know, well into my career and having some very exciting things happen in my career, I, I looked her up and I found her. She was, you know, re- retired and living on a farm in Iowa. And I called her just to tell her that she was one of those protective people in my life at a time when I really needed that. And, um, you know, she just immediately recognized my name and remembered all kinds of details about me. And that meant a lot to me, even at that point well into my adult life and, you know, in an exciting career. So I, I resonate with that so much when you talk about that. And I don't think we can, you know, say that enough to people who want to be helpful, just show up. And as you say, show up 
self-regulated. That's a really good advice too. <laughs> but what a hopeful yeah. message for mm-hmm. all of us to, yeah. uh, you know, engage in our communities in this way and to see, you know, kids who may benefit from our additional support, you know, maybe it's inviting a neighbor kid who's struggling to come over and bake cookies with you to give them a little space and create, you know, a sanctuary away from the stress they're experiencing at home. Um, or you, you know, do that a lot, Erin. You be, you are one of those people who shows up in your neighborhood, and I love that about you. Yeah. yeah, but it's it's a wonderful way to connect with other people and to you know broaden your network, but also to to be supportive to people uh, in all sorts of circumstances. So I, I see a lot of hope in that. Um, just the power of that major protective factor of having even just one person. And I'm curious where each of you find hope when you are working with parents of young children um, with SPMI. Yeah, I think, you know, although there is still mental health stigma, I do feel like um, the attention of mental health needs um, and resources have have grown a lot. Um, I, when I was thinking about this, remembered that my great grandma um, had, I've heard these stories that she had severe postpartum depression and she was institutionalized for the rest of her life. Um, So we've come a long way since that time. Um, There are resources available to, to caregivers um, of young children that have, you know, serious hard things going on. So that makes me feel hopeful, hopeful. And then kind of individually on um, the parents level, what makes me feel hopeful is that when they're able to step back and kind of reflect on um, things that they went well in the way that they were parented or what was hard when when they were growing up and to change any patterns that might have been unhealthy or didn't have their needs met and do it differently with their own child, that, you know, impacts generations to come. And in a way, I think when they're able to offer to their child um, a different way of doing things, it's healing to them. It's healing to their own inner child. Jane, (laughs) would you like to add something? I love to, you know, I was thinking about this and it feels like whether I'm working with families where there is significant mental illness or any spectrum, like maybe more mild illness, I think I find hopes in the micro moments in parent-child interaction. And so um, these are the moments I remember most of from doing therapy. They're moments where like a, a little boy was scared of a toy spider in my office and his mother who often might have just kind of dismissed that and like poo-pooed it she actually had this moment where she's like oh you're scared it's okay I can help and she brought him in on her lap and gave him that comfort that he really needed and he just melted into her arms and they hadn't had many moments like that so when you get to see those moments starting to develop over the course of the time you're working with people it's just so lovely and um or a moment with a really depressed mom where you come alongside the mom and give them a space to process and think through what they're stressed about. And then maybe by the end of a session, the mom has enough brightness in her face that she can share a little smile with her baby and you can kind of like highlight and hold up that really 
precious moment for the parent um, because we know delight is so important and it's so hard to feel delighted about anything when you're depressed. And so it's really looking for those micro moments that gives me hope along with some of my favorite people in my life had really mentally Ill, ill parents when they were growing up and they are amazing adults who like are doing fabulous things in the world. So I think sometimes we can get caught up in like, oh, it's a hard start. What does this mean for this child? And but kids can come through a lot and be really, really resilient, uh, especially if they get partners to help them with their resilience along the way in, in their lifetime. And so oh, that gives me hope, too. Oh, those are wonderful reflections. And uh, I love that concept of the micro moments, because that's what life is made up of. And the little moments really do matter. I want to also just emphasize um, before we close that you've, uh, you've mentioned resilience, and you've talked a lot about the importance of, of um, you know, positive experiences, benevolent childhood experiences. And I think that really deserves emphasis, because sometimes we talk about that term resilience. And we think of it as if, you know, some children are born resilient. Now, not to deny that there can be inborn qualities, you know, inherent qualities that um, that may help you be more resilient. But the vast um, mass of information that has been gathered, really serious research about resilience always points to the power of another person. And it is that just showing up. It's those micro moments. It's being there. It's accepting someone. I think about, you know, taking a walk. I, I live by Lake Harriet and can't count the number of walks I've taken with friends around that lake. But I think about just, just those moments when you're with someone, when you're side by side and not just having an intense talk about uh, some big problem, but just kind of being there and letting things flow. And uh, whether you're talking about helping a child or a parent who's struggling with with some of these enormous challenges, um, I just think the power of resilience comes so much from other people just bothering to be with you, to be next to you as you walk through life, whatever life you've been handed. So... Well, this is a powerful topic, and Kimberly Gascoigne and Jane Perry, you've represented St. David's Center very well. We, we have such a treat um, having all these wonderful experts from St. David's Center over the many years that we've been partners, and you certainly um, did your organization proud, and I'm, I'm grateful to you for what you're doing for children and families through your work and just through your way of being. So thank you for bringing your wisdom to Mom Enough. I'm Marty Erickson here with my daughter, Erin, and we thank you out there for tuning in. If you have not heard the first two podcasts in this series, please go back and start at the beginning. Um, you'll find them on the Mom Enough website, and uh, they're very well worth listening to and just thinking about, you know, wherever you are, whatever your situation, or whoever lives around you or is part of your family and maybe could use a little help. Um, think about what you can do for others as well as for yourself. So um, thank you. And we hope you out there will tune in again next week when Erin and I will be here with another Mom Enough episode. Thank you. Content copyrighted by Marty and Erin Erickson. All rights reserved. Visit momenough.com for an archive of all Mom Enough shows and many free downloadable resources on child development, parenting, and maternal health and well-being. Do you think I'll have a show called Kid Enough someday?